In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, friends and comrades, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Uh, today is our third installment of the Delaware Justice Team Series, produced in partnership with the ACLU of Delaware and the Delaware Call. Uh, Carl is here in the studio with me, and uh, Zooming in virtually, uh, we have our returning champion, uh, civil rights attorney, Wilmingtonian, Razorback, Dwayne Bensing. Dwayne, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me back, Rob. Um, it's a pleasure. It's... And, uh, and also, I am pleased to introduce Claire Snyder Hall. Uh, Claire is uh, an activist and a writer. Uh, she uh, was a professor at the university level for about a dozen years. Uh, and she has also been a, a, a candidate for office in the state of Delaware. Um, and most recently, she's been uh, running a, an organization called Common Cause. Uh, but I wanted to uh, welcome Claire to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you guys um, could come on. So since Dwayne was our returning champion, and, and we kind of went into his background a little bit um, earlier, but we'll, we won't make him do the Razorback uh, cheer again. Uh, which he did nicely for me, which was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, I mean, Claire, you have a very extensive background, but I always like to get an idea of sort of how that background led you to sort of a uh, advocacy um, or, you know, public advocacy um, and, and some of the things you've done leading up to um, the current time. Okay. Well, it's interesting because I, I I just finished writing um, a memoir, which started with my campaign, but when, you know, before and after and thinking about how I got involved in politics. And maybe this may be going too far back for you, but you know, it's interesting because I I didn't become politically, I became politically active in college, like my first year of college or maybe last year of high school. And partly it was because, you know, I grew up during the Cold War, you know, because I'm old. <laughs> and so I had, I took these civics classes at school that were really, you know, kind of anti-communist classes talking about how great, you know, the, the United States is a beacon of democracy and, a, and a, a standing up against totalitarianism and human rights abuses and, you know, all this. And so when I got to college and I um, learned about American foreign policy and some of the things that, that the government's done in our name that a lot of people don't know about, um, well, now they do, but, you know, like, you know, the School of the Americas and uh, funding death squads in Latin America and that kind of thing. The hypocrisy just sort of like struck me. And because I had the opportunity, I was invited by friends to engage in protest. I started I became an activist um, in college and then I ended up going to graduate school and got turned on to democratic theory, which was what I focused on for most of my professional life and still. And so when I left academia in 2011 and moved to Delaware, I got involved. I wanted to get more involved. So I got involved with the Democratic Party and, um, you know, was asked to run for office and so forth. And after after I lost that race, I was I became the common cause director for two years. Then I was in Florida for four years. So now I'm back. And when I came back, my board chair asked if I was interested in getting my old job back. So it's been, uh, it's interesting because now I'm, at, I'm doing, you know, I did political, I did democratic theory as an academic and I still do, but then now I'm doing it more as an, as a advocate. Yeah, it's very, I, I did, it's, I, I guess your, um, your, your book is going to be called battling a prince, a woman's fight 
for democracy. Is that right? Cool, because I did see that, and I made a note of it because it sounded like a actually a pretty provocative title. Um, so I definitely would like to get a if we get a chance, I definitely would like to talk about that. Um, but yeah, I find it very interesting because just last week, you know, you said one of the things that sort of radicalized you, um, and I can date myself too. I was uh, I was at uh, I think so. I think I was a freshman at the University of Delaware when when maybe the Soviet Union fell, something like that. So I remember the Cold War too. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, I guess. Um, but just last week, Biden uh, and Putin were at the G7 and had a meeting and, and Biden came out and said um, that, the, you know, how could someone interfere, you know, in our election? I told him real sternly. And you think, you know, the U.S. has done this all over the world for a couple centuries. And, um, you know, people do know some of it now, as you mentioned, but um, they don't they don't keep it at front of mind uh, or else the president couldn't go out and say something so absurd. It's an interesting phenomenon because for me anyway, I, I in, in the book, I call it, um, I said my mother had a, a stubbornly naive heart, which I sort of have. It's like I keep, I keep getting sucked into this ideal, you know, of what we're really about. And that's what Biden often does. He talks about this isn't us. This isn't what we're about. Even though you know that, you know, we are about racism and, you know, Jim Crow and all these other atrocities, you still kind of keep holding on to that sort of at a, at a gut level, that idea that, that the United States could be better than that, that we aspire to be better than that. We aspire to be democratic and land of the free and, and so forth. Well, I, I just find it so ironic because as I said, I remember when the, I was a political science student, when, uh, when they were trying to bring all of these, um, places together under the Russian, you know, unification and the United States was integral in installing Boris Yeltsin uh, as the first president of a, of a consolidated Russia. And the Time magazine cover said Yanks to the rescue with a with a caricature of Yeltsin, obviously, with the big face and all of that. And I thought, you know, that's like 30 years ago, 25, whatever it was. And and nobody nobody remembers that. Nobody uh, finds it. You know, no one juxtaposes, you know, what people talk about Russia today and, and what we did just, you know, a few, a few decades ago, but maybe that's for the old folks. I don't know. Well, I mean, but it's still going on with, I mean, the things that we did in Iraq, things that we didn't, you know, the, with the, the, uh, the you know, the torture, the, te- you know, rendition, all that stuff, you know, was shock. I was shocked anew. I saw those photos of Abu Ghraib and I was like stunned and appalled, but like, why was I? Because I, I knew about the stuff like that happening before. So it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. Yeah. So Dwayne, how, how have you been? How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. As you all were talking, I was just thinking about uh, a couple months ago, we had a, a book reading on how to rig an election. And I know Claire and I are here. We're going to talk a lot about uh, some voting rights work we've been trying to get going here in Delaware. But, you know, that was a, a comparative analysis as well, uh, talking about all of these phenomenon that are happening globally um, where the U.S. has participated in, in a lot of these practices um, in, in undermining democratic rule. Um, and, you know, I think the conclusion of that book, I won't spoil it for anybody. I encourage folks to read it. But um, it wasn't the most promising conclusion. Uh, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for Claire and, and you, Rob, because I think that the work that you all are doing is so important for a healthy and strong democracy. So, 
it's, it's good that we're doing our part in, in education. But I'm doing great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the front lines doing what I can to, to make sure that we have a, a healthy and strong democracy right here in the first state. Yeah, and I definitely want to, I want to, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Claire, go ahead. I was just going to add that, I mean, it's a great uh, way, a segue, because, you know, we have to always remember that democracy is a fragile social construct, and it's it's not the norm. It's not, it, I mean, it's not the norm that everything's democratic. We have to work at it. We have to keep fighting for it. And it's easy. And we see the rise of fascists, fascism all over the, the world right now. We have to keep fighting. And voting rights are like the, you know, the basic. I mean, that's like, well, that's the fundamental thing. There's so much more to democracy than just that. But that right now is at risk. Yeah, I mean, we can start at the national level first, I, I, I suppose, and then get sort of some of the Delaware action. But I, I, it was really stark to me yesterday. I went to an event. The Delaware Poor People's Campaign had a launch for like a year of, of action uh, to try to move on this proposal they're calling the third reconstruction, just to try to reframe, you know, the, reframe the whole argument. And, of course, that harkens back to the first Reconstruction, uh, which basically, you know, failed because every opportunity that folks got to, to build a coalition um, was cut down using voting rights, you know. And uh, we can go down the laundry list of, of poll taxes and literacy tests and, and just outright violence and intimidation. Uh, and then the second uh, Reconstruction what they're calling Reconstruction is the uh, the Civil Rights Movement that culminated in the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. But the Voting Rights Act, uh, as we've seen lately, um, sort of is very, uh, very tenuous. You know, it's like it's at the whim of a judiciary, really. And so now we're dealing with things sort of on a national level that are starting to, you know, cut back at those voting rights. And just today uh, in the. They call it Bay to Bay now. It used to be the Delaware State News, an op-ed from Claire Snyder Hall. For the, people's, uh, for the People's Act Necessary to Protect the Integrity of Elections. And you want to talk a little bit about the People's Act and, and the, the points you made in this op-ed? Yes. Um, the For the People Act, is, it's, a, it's a really important uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, it would establish bold national standards um, across the country so that we wouldn't have to be fighting anti-voter extremists in 50 states. Because in this calendar year alone, there's been almost 400 laws proposed by anti-voters um, in, in 48 states. And so like we're stuck, and we'll get to this in a minute, like we've been struggling to get no excuse absentee voting passed in Delaware, but we wouldn't have to keep fighting that fight and people in Florida fighting and people in Arizona fighting to protect the basic uh, you know, freedom to vote and the ability of black and brown people to have their voices heard on election day, right? And so it, it, so that's one thing that'd be really important, but it's way more than that too. The For the People Act also includes um, campaign finance reform that pr would prevent billionaires from buying elections. It includes independent commissions for fair redistricting, right? So that in, uh, powerful incumbents can't use the process to aggrandize themselves and their cronies and protect incumbency, and also ethics and transparency laws. It's an 800-page bill, but it includes so many things that are vitally important for um, preserving democracy, because we really are right now at risk. You know, not to sound hyperbolic, but, you know, our democracy is under attack. And, um, you know, 
we have to realize that. And I hope that, you know, the Senate, the Democratic senators will do whatever they can to try to get that passed, um, even if that means getting rid of the filibuster, which I know we might not all agree on. No, we all. I mean, I'm going to speak for everybody. We all agree on it. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I believe we do. Um, that was the next point I was going to make. I think it's very important that you made that explicit point in the op-ed that, you know, you do you really support the bill if you don't support ending the filibuster? You don't. That's a that's a, it's a meaningless gesture to say you support this or that thing. If you know that uh, the majority doesn't rule, it's very easy um, to say something that doesn't you'll never be held accountable uh, for it. Uh, so. Yeah, I'm glad that you 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 made that point. Um, you know, I I guess I'll let Dwayne uh, speak for himself, but yeah, I mean, I'm about the, the Senate is not a democratic institution. It w- wasn't set up to be a democratic institution. Um, it wasn't even set up to be directly elected. And so, if you get fifty plus one, just do do what do what you have to do. You weren't elected, you know, you were elected to do stuff. So go do it. So I'm I'm in agreement with you on that. And just one more thing, though, before I let Dwayne jump in, <laughs> not that I'm dominating here. Um, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. That's that's another important thing. To, to, it's not part of the Constitution. It's just the Senate rule. You know, so it doesn't it's not like you're even, you know, changing something that, you know, some people consider the sacred you know, document. Yeah, well, I'll give a shout out to um, to our one of our editors on the Delaware call, uh, Andrew Galvin. I just spoke to him yesterday. He was um, at the at the Poor People's Campaign event, and his big uh, his his big shtick is uh, is abolishing the Senate, and I agree with him on that. And so we, we we'll take it a step further and just 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 trash the Senate because it's it's like the House of Lords. It's we don't need it. <clears throat> Dwayne, are we? Is this too radical for you? No, no. I mean. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to have uh, Claire take the lead on this because, uh, you know, I think my personal stance on this is uh, irrelevant at this point, but I definitely agree from a personal stance uh, with, with almost, I think, probably everything that's been said. And, and I think that, Rob, I think the point you just raised is really so important for people to remember is that the Senate is an anti-democratic institution. And so when we're talking about strengthening our democracy uh, and a majority rules in a democratic society, uh, we have the Senate that <laughs> is not representative of, of our population. Um, and then, you know, we also have a Supreme Court that now has, um, you know, the three appointees from a president that was, uh, <laughs> anyway, we, we don't even have to get into it. But, uh, you know, I think that um, For the People Act does have some really great national standards in it. The ACLU has been agnostic on For the People Act for I think some really uh, in the weeds issues, but, you know, I think that one thing I'll speak on from my personal experiences, you know, I campaigned um, in elections in, in at least three different states uh, this last 2020 election cycle. Um, and I have to tell you, in each state, I had to learn anew what the voting standards were because each state had a different timeline of early voting or whether early voting was even available, had a different timeline of when mail ballots would become available and where you could drop them off and how you could, uh, you know, deliver those if they required a signature or an outer envelope. And so, you know, what, what, you know, I just learned from this experience is that each state that you go to has vastly different requirements. And if you're a person who's you know, newly moved from one state to another before an election, 
Uh, you better hope you get there before the registration deadline. Uh, Delaware has one of the, the latest or, or the earliest registration deadlines uh, uh, in the country that's allowable by federal law. And so, you know, you better get there early enough and register to vote. And then you better learn, you know, how you can actually exercise that right. And so we've just got to do a lot better job, not only here in Delaware, but nationally. And I think that's the, those many of those questions are, are answered by the For the People Act. Of what is the floor of how we uh, permit voter participation? And I just think that we need to expand those opportunities as widely as we can to make sure that we give folks every opportunity uh, that they can get to exercise their right. Yeah, I mean, I look at it like this. Here in Delaware, and maybe we can talk about some specifics. Claire mentioned the um, the automatic voter registration, and uh, no and no excuse absentee. So we had the we had the uh, pandemic, and the COVID pandemic required sort of emergency measures uh, to vote, and so everybody could vote absentee. You could go drop it off if you wanted to, whatever, and it worked fine. It worked great. There's you know there's no nobody's contesting it now it's being contested in other states for for reasons other than the fact that it worked fine um that's the thing that i think people need to harp on is that it's not solving a problem somebody said well don't you want uh, free and fair elections and one person one vote and all this yet yeah, we have that this nothing nothing we have today actually we could expand it and in the places that it has been expanded it's worked great we just had an emergency situation here in delaware it worked fine uh, so the the motive for um, sort of the motive for not making these changes permanent, I think, is very suspicious. And so maybe you can talk about some of these um, things in the state because I we I, I suppose we we it was approved to uh, for registration, uh, but the no the no excuse um, absentee is is no more. That 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 was just an emergency measure. Is that right? That's right. It expired. So, so we don't have an absentee provision uh, in our Delaware code right now for elections moving forward. Yeah. So when 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 that topic comes up, I, I urge people just to, uh, to to have people point them to the the evidence that shows that this time around when we did it by emergency, that there was any issue whatsoever um, with fraud or access, just expanded access for people basically is, is all it did. Um, so. You know, it's a little it's it's a little bit disheartening that we can't uh, move on some things that seem pretty straightforward. Right. I mean, to me, it's just the thing that strikes me is I don't understand why anybody thinks that we should have to provide an excuse to the to the government for why we want an absentee ballot. You know, I mean, that's not partisan and that's not it shouldn't be controversial. I mean, anybody can vote by absentee ballot if they, you know, if they're able to, they can't do that now because we don't have that option, but um, it's just another option. And, you know, just the whole idea of having to provide an excuse. And, th and there's also, there's only certain excuses that are acceptable, it's legitimate. It's not any excuse. And wanting to stay safe during a pandemic is not currently a legitimate excuse for having an absentee ballot, which is why they had to do the emergency um, uh, exception. Um, and of course, why would it be? We wouldn't have that written in the Constitution because the Constitution, you know, was written, you know, a while back. But, um, you know, we just really need because people are going to be surprised, I think, in 2022 if they're not able to. I mean, maybe it'll pass before then. But if they're not, if it doesn't and they're not able to vote um, by absentee ballot, they're going to be very surprised, I think. 
So are there any are there any pending um, voting rights issues that haven't been adjudicated in this uh, in this in the state in this general assembly session? I mean, we're winding down. We only have a few, I guess, just a few more sessions left. You know, they're real. They're, they're always lighting the world on fire down there, really tearing it up. Uh, but is there anything else pending um, that we can we can look towards and say, hey, we could get a win here um, with something in the legislature? I guess that's a Dwayne question. All right, I'll go. I, Claire, Claire knows well. I mean, Claire and I are our partners in in advocacy here, so uh, we both have been working hard behind the scenes. And Rob, I, I really have to tell you, I think that Claire and I are showing up today with, you know, a little over a week left in this legislative session, and we have seen uh, little action in the General Assembly, uh, no action on the House side. Um, where there's been one Senate bill that's been passed that's going to allow for expanded automatic uh, voter registration, which we're really proud to see that advance to the governor's desk. But there uh, were at least two important House bills uh, that have been introduced. One is uh, Representative Dorsey Walker's House Bill 25 on uh, same-day voter registration, which allows folks to register and vote all at once, uh, whether they do that in the early voting period or on election day itself. That's a huge, advancement for folks that eliminates an added barrier of voter registration for a person who wants to exercise their right to vote. Um, hasn't had its day in a, in a committee hearing yet, so we're waiting to see uh, if the House is going to act on that quickly in the remaining time that we have. Um, it's, time to, it's, time to, it's time to act. Claire, you want to add on, on HB I just 25? wanted to add that the um, HB 75, the um, no excuse absentee voting amendment is not dead. It's still, it's on the table right now and it yep. doesn't expire until the end of next session. So it, it's not, hasn't been totally defeated. Um, it did go down, it did fail to pass, but then through a, a procedural um, maneuver, um, it was brought back up and um, has been laid on the table. So there's still, there's yep. still, a chance um, this month. Yep. Um, it, we need two re- two Republican votes to to pass it because it because there has to be a two thirds um, of the of the House voting for it. So who knows if anything? Totally okay. agree. Yeah, and I was, I was definitely I was going to talk about HB seventy five next. I oh, think I'm those sorry. I'm no, you're fine. Oh, no, you're right. I mean, HB twenty five. We haven't seen any of the action there, and HB seventy five. You know, it's been a real focus of our coalition's attention, um, and it was put on the agenda and then pulled, and then it was put on the agenda and failed to get the votes necessary to advance. Um, and thanks to the, the procedural uh, mechanisms that Claire referenced, we you know have an opportunity to bring it back up for a successful vote uh, before the end of the session. But the the thing about that constitutional amendment is, I think its promise is that it would permit no excuse absentee voting if the General Assembly acted um, to implement that legislation. It isn't in and of itself. It would not really change anything for voters in Delaware because the code, uh, as it's written now, understands that there are absentee uh, reasons uh, that a voter has to have to vote by an absentee ballot. And so what we need is is implementing language after the constitutional amendment that, that makes uh, no excuse absentee voting available to all voters in the state of Delaware. But what we're looking at now uh, is a General Assembly that if it fails to act in the next several days, 
uh, comes back in January, and then we have only a few months before there are primary and general elections in 2022. That's not a lot of time to give our elections folks uh, the time that they need to implement a really well-run uh, program. But more importantly, from my perspective, is it's not a lot of time to educate voters about this really uh, fundamental way in which they should be able to exercise their vote, which many of them uh, used in the 2020 election and will not, you know, without this, the passage of this legislation, uh, they're going to show up to the polls or not show up to the polls. They're going to be expecting that they're going to get a mail ballot like they did in 2020. And then when the, you know, postman arrives, they're not going to have that ballot because that's not going to be the way the 2022 elections go without this necessary change. Yeah, it's it's funny because in in, in so many of these issues um, that we talk about, whether it's a minimum wage or you know voting rights issues, um, people support it. They have they have pretty broad popular support. Um, you know, Carl and his and his uh, comrades are always uh, you know cutting turf, knocking doors. They're always on the street. They they have their ear to the their ear to the ground. They know what people you know, what people think is popular. Uh, but that's not actually always enough. And uh, the reason I bring that up is, is, is Dwayne, you, you mentioned sort of stonewalling, especially in the House right now in the legislature. We saw leadership changes in the Senate. So we have, you know, a little bit more, um, a little bit more, you know, purchase there. Uh, probably shouldn't use that word, but this is the first one that came to my mind. Uh, but in the House, we have a problem. And the problem emanates from, uh, Claire's neck of the woods, uh, and and to, I I know you were a uh, you were a a, a candidate uh, before, uh, but we have a very we have a guy that we 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 lovingly refer to as Pistol Pete, Pistol Pete the the cop, and he is doesn't seem to be interested in uh, legislating and making laws. It's more like not making laws, if you feel me. And so what can we do in the Rehoboth Beach area uh, to neutralize and retire Pistol Pete? Common Cause doesn't get involved in any um, elections, you know. Yes, no, this is outside of the Common Cause. I, I, I wonder, I, I don't think, yeah, I'm asking you to speak only for yourself, um, not, not, not for the thing. I, I just wonder whether, um, it was just, it, it, was, it struck me that... Um, that Dwayne said something that I'm hearing from more and more activists and advocates um, as this session sort of rolls on, which is, you know, our our democ our voting. You know, we're talking about voting. <clears throat> our, our our we've exercised our voting rights and we've we've made changes to the Senate, and now we're seeing sort of a more active Senate in wanting to address some of our social, economic, and um, civil rights concerns. So how are we going to vote? How are we going to exercise our voting right in the House um, to do the same? Well, I think that um, Sussex County is, um, you know, it's a conservative. I want to say conservative. The tr it's a Trump uh, county. Um, and I mean, the Trump people aren't necessarily conservatives. Uh, some of them are uh, proto-fascist. Um, so it's not, I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's it's surprising that there's even any Democrats in Sussex County, put it that way. I think what has to happen is we need organizing down in Sussex. We need people organizing in 
like where can we fix this is see this is what the far right did in um the, with the rise of the christian right they didn't just stick to the people they thought already agreed with them they went into the unions you know and started peeling people off they went into uh latinx communities and started peeling people off there needs to be organizing down in sussex there's a lot of working people down in sussex and the democratic party if they had more of a working uh agenda for working families or working families party um you know organizing folks and trying to shift uh, trying to shift the um allegiance to from one party to the other if that makes, I don't know if that's making any, what I'm saying is making sense. Or no, not. I think that makes perfect sense. An economic I'm, agenda that prioritizes uh, material needs of working people would get working people voting for the party that offers that instead of voting for the party that wants to destroy their material well-being and their quality of life. And right. that's not, there's not, it's not a short-term solution, but if you put somebody up right now to run in Sussex, I mean, I don't, I don't know what Democrat can win in Sussex. No, I, well, think I want to clarify something real fast because uh, I, and I think both can be true, but I just want it to be clear for, for the folks that are listening in. The entire Democratic caucus was united on HB 75, um, but did not have the necessary two votes from any Republican uh, member. This is a Republican caucus that just two years ago all but three of their members voted in favor of the exact same constitutional language. Uh, there's no reason in fact, there's no reason in logic for any of these change in votes, yet uh, all but two of the Republicans voted no this time around and two voted not voting. Um, so, you know, uh, all but three of them changed their vote from just two years ago based on the quote unquote big lie of voter fraud, none of which we saw in Delaware in 2020. Uh, and so I just, that is really concerning to me. And I think it can be true um, that, that, that partial responsibility definitely falls on the foot of the Republican caucus in the Delaware House. I, I, those votes are indefensible in my mind. Um, I think it could also be true, and I think this is what you were referencing before, uh, that, that perhaps the leadership in the House or the sponsor of HB 75, what have you, did not do what needs to be done to govern, right? Did not earn those votes in the Republican caucus. But I think we need to be very clear um, that this is, a, this is a constitutional amendment that does need bipartisan support just based on the constitutional uh, language requiring a supermajority for a constitutional amendment. And so, you know, when we're, when we're trying to divvy out, you know, whose fault is it or whatever, um, you know, I think that both perhaps could be true, but I just really want to make it crystal clear to our viewers that are listeners that um, there, there are some very surprising votes that happened this time around that are really unjustifiable. And we should be holding those folks accountable when we're talking about voting rights in the state of Delaware. Right. And just to add, because right, because even the conservative Democrats voted for no excuse absentee voting and well, automatic voter registration actually had a bipartisan had bipartisan support. Um, so that's a good clarification, Glenn. Yeah, no, that's I, I, I appreciate that. And, and I know you have to do your 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 due diligence. Um, and I and I and, and you're right. I actually because I take a very cynical view. Um, I think that the the. The logic that you're looking for is the fact that there there doesn't need to be logic. Like it's very 
I, I, here's the way I look at it. Now, I'm not saying this is true, uh, but but based on the the, the the situation as you describe it, it's very easy for the conservative Democratic lawmakers to just vote yes because it's not going anywhere because they know that, you know, there's enough that they don't have the two thirds that they need to make a constitutional change. It's the same reason that that as Claire wrote in her op ed that Chris Coons and and Carper can say that they support the pro act as it is or excuse me, not the pro act uh, <clears throat> for the people act. Pardon me. Um, they should support the pro act actually also. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, and again, that this is a this is a cynical sort of view that I take. But I want people to start thinking because the. There are people in legislative leadership and politicians and lobbyists to think this way. And so, uh, at, at, you know, Dwayne described it perfectly. It's that, that's accurate. Um, but that situation gives people the opportunity to say they support something or not support it based on nothing, just based on the fact that it's not it's, – it's a – there's a, uh, there's a, 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 con- a congressional procedural logjam – constitutional logjam so you really actually don't have to take uh don't have to take a strong position because you know what the outcome is going to be yeah and like i said rob i think i think you know both both could be true and and i just you know i and to that point i think i started talking about hb 25 hb 25 the same day voter registration does not require a constitutional majority a super majority uh to pass it is not a constitutional amendment so I, I share with you disappointment in our leadership in the House uh, for failure to advance some of these really important voting rights uh, pieces of legislation that our coalition has been fighting for for months now. So, you know, I, I don't know where the failure is entirely, um, but HB 25 certainly does not need a supermajority. So that excuse fails. Um, for that specific piece of legislation. And so I'm, you know, I got to tell you, I'm really disappointed because what we're seeing around the country right now are fights uh, about advancing rights for voters, right? And in other states, what we're seeing is this chipping away of rights. And I was optimistic. I started this session in January really optimistic that Delaware could have been a leader to show how we can advance opportunities for voters. Um, We have, you know, a majority in the House and, and Senate of, of folks who do, uh, at least by word, say that they support advancing opportunities for voters. And so I was optimistic that we'd be able to make some advancements. And what we've seen uh, is just a few remaining days uh, is not enough work has been done. Well, I just, when I was um, Common Cause Director in 2015 and 2016, we worked on um, same-day voter registration, both years. And I will, it's in the, I might as well say this since it's coming out of my book. Um, it was the Democrats that blocked it. Not the ones we're talking about that went on the Senate side. Right. And it was really a, really a sort of shattering thing for me because I, you know, back to this whole, you know, stubbornly naive hard idea. Like I had this idea that, you know, the Democrats were the good guys. And it's really about power, right? I mean, people in power don't want to give up power. And, and if you look at the redistricting, you know, situations, the same thing, right? The party, yes, when the Republicans are in power, they use the mechanisms they have to advance their interests. And when the Democrats are in power, 
they they often use the same mechanism to advance their power. And you know, we're a common cause is about holding power accountable, right? I mean, and we know that any power always has to be with a check and a balance. Um, and that's our system, the way, well, the way it's supposed to work. So, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, I was less optimistic about, but, but there's been, uh, but there have been changes as both of you noted in the leadership um, in the Senate side. And there's been a lot of changes in the House side too um, in who got elected. So, you know, maybe we do have a chance to get same day voter registration passed this, this, uh, this semester. Um, yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I, uh, when you mentioned about the, the way forward in Sussex County, I agree with everything you said. Um, yeah, I mean, right now the, the working people, um, the poor people, the people on, you know, meager wages, they have nothing to vote for in Democratic Party. And so why would they? I, I completely understand that. And, and until there's sort of a mass movement um, to organize um, that part of the electorate and make sure that they have voting rights when we organize them. Um, yeah, we're, we're probably going nowhere. I, 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 I agree with everything that, that you said. Well, it's the whole Thomas Frank, what's the matter with Kansas argument, right? That, that working people vote on social issues because they don't have a working, a, an agenda for working folks coming from the Democratic Party. That was what Thomas Frank said. And so it's a national problem. Yeah, right? it's not it's not specific to the Delaware Democrats. And in fact, we're I'm excited now because we're seeing that that's changing. You know, we have squad members being elected all over the country. Um, left organizing is back. I mean, that's one of the silver linings, I think, of the Trump years is that um, he was so offensive to so many people that actually stimulated, um, for example, uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Right. They were fifty six hundred uh aging college professors um, until 2016. And now they're almost 100,000 young people organizing, right? Um, Working Families parties organizing. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff. So it's a national, and, and the issue is though that the, the, what's happening at the national level is now steeping into the states. So, you know, when I first moved here in 2011, you know, Mike Castle was, was our Senator. And there was this idea that, you know, we were not, we didn't have partisan hyper-partisanship. There's the whole Delaware way, you know, people talk and they get along and all this stuff. And that's really changed over the last um, 10 years or so um, with the rise of uh, more um, radicalized uh, movements on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I love to talk, but I don't get along with anyone. <clears throat> um, so I, I have a question. I'm, I'm dying to, to get your input on this, um, Claire. So I, I, I'm hoping um, you have a lot of stuff to tell me. So if, am I correct um, to say that you were a, a professor at, at uh, George Mason? Is that right? That's correct. For 12 years. Awesome. So uh, way back when I wrote a, I read a book called Democracy in Chains. Uh, Nancy uh, McLean wrote it. And there's there's a long history about um, education in Virginia and how the big how big business and, and capital interests were able to sort of stem the tide of public schools and keep poor people and people of color out of public schools and segregation and all of this. And the the sort of end of that into the 80s and 90s was this this Koch brothers sort of think tank 
called Mercatus, which is like this libertarian. I mean, Mercatus is just so it's so fucked that these people are, are dorks. I mean, they name it the Latin word for markets. That's so stupid. But um, famously, um, the political science and, and economics department at, at George Mason is where they operate their academic stuff out of. So I guess what I'm asking you is, can you dish the dirt on Mercatus at George at George Mason? Can you give me some give me some details? I mean, were you familiar with their work? Did you clash with them? What kind of influence do they have in the academic side of things in the in the political science department in the economics department? Um, yeah, give me the dirt. Well, first of all, the um, just to clarify, I was at Public and International Affairs, which is what we called our political science department, okay. and we were not. We were not involved with the economics department was where the the super conservative libertarian stuff happens and the Coke funded folks. Act, although actually they tried to install a they tried to install a visiting scholar in my department that was um we won't tell you who's funding them, but the university's gonna get a million dollars if you take this person and I <laughs> I pitched a fit at the faculty meeting, and then I then of course I was on the uh, S list with uh, the chair. But anyway, um, the, so political science wasn't really involved in it. Um, but I will tell you that I I taught the um, uh, political theories uh, requirement for the PhD program, and I had students in my class who had taken economics, and they were telling me that the United States is a communist country. <laughs> That's what they taught them in the economics department. So, yeah, sounds about right. I actually, I, I was a little shocked. And this is a nighttime class. So I'm like, uh, can we move back to the Communist Manifesto and not get into like 20th century? So I was really, I was really shocked. But um, yeah, Mercatus is very um, powerful and um, Koch Brothers funded. And I actually didn't even realize the extent of it back because I started there in 2000. Um, so we knew about, Mer we knew about Mercatus and the, um, Center for Humane Studies, which he talks about in the book, um, and the right wing influence in the law school, the Kenneth Starr Law School. Uh, oh, right, right. That's also which the is law now, which is now the Antonin Scalia. Uh, well, wait, see, uh, Kenneth Starr was a was a professor at the law school, but then then they name it the Antonin Scalia School of Law. Awesome. Um, abbreviation being Ass Law. Um, nice. But anyway, so um, yeah, I don't know that I have any any super great stories about that, except for my students, because uh, I pretty much steered clear. I didn't have any problem teaching my curriculum in my department. So well, those were pretty good. those were pretty good stories. Yeah, well, we didn't have a lot of we had a conservative student body, pretty much. Right. Yeah. I, I when it was it's funny when you you were mentioning the things um, that were included in in some of the national proposals the uh, for the people act and mentioned campaign finance reform now of course this is sort of like private think tank money um a little bit different but i mean you always think about the Koch brothers and and that it, it just i made that connection i was like oh you might have some you might have some good stories for us but i'm not i'm not surprised they tried to put somebody on the faculty i'm not surprised by that oh at all. yeah that's what they did and they and they're doing it all over so they, you know, because because this is the thing about the um, the battle that we've been talking about for democracy and and other and um, you know for the people is um, the we have the universities right we liberal thinkers and left thinkers are more um, I don't want to say it's not I'm not saying that there's like the radical tenured radicals thing but I mean there are a lot of uh, 
intellectual thought going on in the universities. And so the right is worried about that. They're also worried about consumer, the consumer base, right? And what the corporations are doing for the culture wars and stuff. So they're losing on those fronts. So that's why they're trying to install people into universities and also cut funding because that's one of the problems is that we no longer understand education as a public good. It's seen as like an individual's responsibility for that so they can get a job instead of thinking about the value that, that education has for an entire society. And so when you're cutting the funding all the time, then universities have to reach out to these um, people with money to fund them and think about how they're going to you know, pay their bills. So it's a, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And, and again, it's not I, I, I would uh, ask people if they're interested. It's not a coincidence that this is it. Uh, this is at a Virginia. Uh, this is a private university in Virginia because the history oh, no, it's public, excuse me, a public university in Virginia. Pardon me. Um, yeah, because the the history of the history of, quote unquote, public schools in Virginia um, through some of the legal finagling they were trying to do to keep, uh, you know, to not desegregate um, and even before. It's it's probably one of the most uh, just atrocious examples of of systemic racism in the entire country is the public school history in, in the state of Virginia. Uh, so, I, yeah, I definitely urge people to, to look at that if they're interested in something like that. It just it just paints that picture. It's uh, yeah, it's not great. Uh, so now it's Dwayne's turn to dish the dirt. Um, is it my understanding that there is a new lead counsel at the ACLU of Delaware? There is. We have a brand new litigation director. It's really exciting. Yep. Nice. Uh, Susan Burke just joined us. She and I, uh, as well as Suchi, our intake director, are all studying for the bar right now. So it's, a, it's kind of an anticlimactic uh, initial beginning of, of her term. So we're going to kind of all hide for the month of July studying for the bar exam. But we are really excited to have Susan on board leading our efforts uh, here in Delaware. Yeah, cool. I'm I'm excited to uh, to meet her. I haven't yet. Um, a couple people have, and uh, yeah, it's just exciting um, that so much stuff is going down um, in the state. Yeah, it's really it's really great, and we're we're looking forward. To, you know, we've had uh, I'm a new face with ACLU ACLU of Delaware started in January of last year, and then Mike Brickner joined a couple months after that. He's our new executive director, uh, and now we have a new litigation director. So. Um, lots of exciting changes at the ACLU of Delaware, and we're, we're really looking forward to uh, engaging in some strategic planning and thinking about where our litigation impact needs to be. Yeah, nice. Very nice. So last, last topic or last question that's a little bit, little bit forward-looking, but not that far forward. Um, you know, a big part of, of voting rights and making sure that if we're going to do mass movement politics, that everybody has access to, you know, being able to make their make their vote and have their voice heard um, is, is, you know, gerrymandering and, and, you know, how these districts are set, but we're, we're due for a, uh, we're due for a reshuffle here in the state um, after the census. Everybody is um, where, where does that stand? I mean, wh- what's going to happen? I, I actually, I, I wish I could ask a, a, a more detailed question, um, but I, I don't know a lot about it. I know that people like like Carl over here. He, he might even chime in on this, and he he probably knows a lot about you know how these um, how these districts break down and who's where and why. Um, but yeah, let's. I, I'd I'd like to finish with a discussion about that so I can give people sort of an idea of you know what the state might look like after this big uh, redistricting shuffle. 
Yep. There are a lot of known unknowns right now on that question, Rob. What, what we don't know yet is uh, we don't have the official accounting from the U.S. Census uh, Bureau because the delay in, in the census uh, under the last administration. So normally by this time, uh, states have already received um, their information so that they can begin that redistricting process. Um, but because of that delay, states don't yet have the official uh, data to know, um, you know, where everybody lives so that they can do the redistricting process. And so the way Delaware has responded is that they will call a special uh, session uh, to do the redistricting in the fall, and that will be based on the official numbers from the census. Um, and then we'll see where, where folks live. I think there's a lot of thought that there's been a demographic shift to the uh, to the southern side of the state uh, that may result in um, a loss of a seat or two from Newcastle County and a gain of a seat or two in Sussex County. We don't know that yet. That's a, uh, we'll have to look at, at what the numbers tell us. Um, but, uh, but we do know that the House redraws its lines and the Senate redraws their lines. They're given standards in the Constitution and state law to help them with that process. Um, and our role, you know, on the advocacy side of things is just to make sure that we make that process as transparent as we can um, and that we include as many folks and community voice in that process as possible. Really, these districts need to be drawn thinking about where our communities live together and that way that they're represented um, and that their representatives are listening to these shared voices of their communities of interest. Uh, and so we can't really have a really fulsome redistricting process without that community voice element. And so the League of Women Voters has been doing a lot of work on this. Uh, you should definitely invite them to your show sometime to talk more about it uh, as, as we move forward. But I know that um, the, the main things we're looking at is identifying these communities of interest to make sure that they are drawn in, uh, in to the same district and that, that the process is transparent and doesn't favor uh, any person or party. Yeah, so just a, just exactly right. Great overview, Dwayne. So putting communities back at the center, right? Because redistricting should be about the communities, just like voting needs to be about voters, not parties, right? It shouldn't, these processes should not be about aggrandizing parties, but rather empowering uh, uh, communities and people to have their voices heard. So Carl, uh, Dwayne mentioned data. You're 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 a guru. You're a behind the scenes guru. What what's your take on all this? I mean, yeah, we like you said, we don't have the official numbers, so I don't know for certain. I mean, if you look at even Google Maps, which I I use a lot just to sort of scope out canvassing areas without having to drive all the way down, you just see a bunch of areas in Sussex County and Middletown is really the other big one where there's addresses there, but even the satellite or the street view and none of that's been updated yet because there's been so much built just in these last few years. Um, so my bet would be based on just that sort of, sort of gut feeling plus looking at voter registration numbers in these individual precincts. Um, yeah, probably another Middletown district, another Sussex district, um, and then either Pike Creek or Newark will probably lose a district. Well, there you go, folks. Um, things are happening and we need to protect voting rights because we're going to start organizing people in different places and we're going to expect, you know, sort of different turnouts so we can uh, exact the change that we want to see. Um, 
So this is why it's so important. Uh, Claire and Dwayne, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I'm so excited to be able um, to do this partnership with the ACLU of Delaware because um, they're, they're doing so much stuff, as Dwayne said, staffing up with just incredible people, um, making sort of making alliances and, and coalitions with other people doing other kinds of work and, and, and organizing, lobbying, um, advocating, writing op-eds. Um, so uh, I, I'm just I'm glad you guys were able to uh, to take the time and, uh, and talk to me about it. Thank you very much, Rob. It was really fun. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, so I do want to have you back when the book comes out, by the way, because we we never got a chance to talk about it. I said we would, but um, maybe that will be the time where you can uh, can travel up here and we'll do something in the studio and we'll talk about your book. Cool. Well, everyone, uh, that's our show for today. You can find our stuff on Twitter, at Highlands Bunker. You can find our stuff on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Uh, I think it would be really cool. It would be a really cool sort of uh, show of solidarity to hit us up with a, uh, with a patronage uh, and help uh, help us continue to do this work. Uh, everything we talked about that's important will be linked in the show notes. Uh, while Carl cuts out all of my good rants, he does make sure that the show notes are filled with great resources. So you'll be able to look at what the ACLU is doing, what Common Cause is doing, uh, what uh, Delaware Call is doing, because they are also a partner in producing these special podcasts so once again everyone uh we'll speak to you soon and left is best he's carl's carl's kind of a cop Carl's, Carl's a good man. <laughs> not now. Is that going to be cut out? Probably not. See, that's the kind of stuff. D- see, Dwayne knows exactly the kind of stuff that's going to stay in the final cut. <laughs>